listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Josh Rosenfield here with Soren Howe. We're discussing episode 10 of season one, Mr. Wu. Mr. Um, Wu. So you said last week that uh, there was a particular thing that this character, Mr. Wu, was like really well known for if you've seen the show mm. and you weren't sure if it would be uh, revealed in, in this episode. But <laughs> I, I want to know, was it? Was it indeed? <laughs> Yes, it was. Um, so, okay. uh, as you may have noticed, he has a particular um, uh, phrase he uses fairly regularly. Uh, okay. In the yes. episode. <laughs> and um, it's funny, because it's that, I would say, more than Hoopleheads, um, which is sort of more of a, you know, if you're a bit more of a fan of the show, you might know Hoopleheads, but certainly everybody who knows the show uh, knows Cocksucker as, like, the main well, I will say when Deadwood I word. <laughs> when I put it out when I put it out on Twitter asking for suggestions for the name of a Deadwood podcast, mm. those were the two. Those were <laughs> essentially the only two things that people said. There you and, go. And um, I'm I'm glad we went with Hoopleheads, but <laughs> that was a, the other thing was a pretty popular suggestion. Oh yeah, yeah, it's pretty um, iconic in the context of the show, uh, particularly because it seems to be one of very few. English words that Mr. Wu speaks, uh, but as his character uh, functions on the show, like as we'll 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 see him more that because because he, just because he's in episodes with dialogue and his dialogue primarily consists of that, it became sort of part of the show um, in, in a more significant way. Uh, but it's it's funny this episode uh, is probably the first Deadwood episode like the first episode i feel like now we're getting into what i associate with deadwood hmm. and we'll, we can talk about that in more depth but even just character wise um uh we get hostetler at one point richardson who very very iconic with this show and mr Wu, and they all just showed up this episode which is hilarious to me because you know there were so many things that i definitely identify with the show and bullock and you know all these other characters, but you know, way more than Bill Hickok and well, for obvious reasons, but way more than Bill Hickok <laughs> and all these other characters, um, the characters that really identify with the show are starting to be introduced uh, slowly here or all at once here. But you know, now we're starting to get into more of these other characters, and it's just it's funny. It's funny that it took until episode ten. I didn't even realize that uh, it would take this long to get. I had forgotten. Um, so when I think back on the show, basically, I, I think more of episodes like this that have all these characters. And the other major thing, I think, just as an overview of, of, you know, the the tone of this episode, which is very Al-centric, is Al's pivot to being an almost sympathetic... I don't want to quite call him a protagonist, but kind of a protagonist. He's sort of the hero of this little episode, this little story arc here. Which is um, funny, because my impression was so the opposite of that, where I felt like this was the first episode where we see him be really overtly, uh, you know, not villainous, but just, you know, nasty and, and really terrible. And it's funny. Really? I think he comes off as a protagonist only in, co- only in uh, contrast to the people around him. Oh, are... that's so interesting. No, I this is the I I completely disagree, but I guess we'll see when we we get into the episode. Yeah. Well, it doesn't um, even start with him though. It starts with uh, Seth, who's very frustrated about having to do actual work as the as the health commissioner. Yeah, it turns out they have actual responsibilities, and he's frustrated because he feels not... like he needs he has to do something about it. Uh, like yeah, that's to, the thing. It's 
it's voluntary. Exactly. It's not clear, like, it doesn't seem like he uh, was, like, he's expected to, to do any of this. Like, it seemed pretty clear last episode that they would have been fine. You know, these were just titles, basically. And mm-hmm. he didn't actually have, an, nobody, none of them had any actual responsibility, but he right. feels like, he, he still feels like, all right, if I'm, if I'm going to do this, if I volunteered for this position, I feel like I have to do something. Even stuff that uh, puts him in direct opposition with right. Farnham well, and, he, and Al. I guess he, he's, it almost seems like he's worried about the consequences if he doesn't. You know, they're going to come to him. Yeah. You know, if there's no infirmary, now that there is a health inspector, suddenly <laughs> responsibility fell to someone. Um, before, you, would, you know, who would you complain to? You'd be like, oh, yeah, sucks to suck. We don't have an infirmary. Who are you going to ask, you know? But now that there's a mayor and a, you know, a health inspector, now you've got to, or whatever he is, you've got to go and, um, you know, all the complaints will be addressed to him or or the mayor will forward all the complaints to him. And so now he yeah. feels like he needs to preempt these things. Um, but yeah, we get some insight into Seth in this episode with, you know, he says he, this is what he ran away from. Later in the episode, he, he makes a comment about that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I wonder... Then, because we've we've we don't really know what the reason is for him coming to Deadwood, and it seems like, aside from his fam, the family that he didn't really want, um, and aside from, uh, you know, I guess not wanting to be a sheriff anymore, it's also the bureaucracy and responsibility of being an official that he also didn't want, uh, and now he's he's got that all back, which is kind of funny. Well, I think it's having responsibility for others. Um, yeah. More maybe maybe I don't know, but more than anything else. But I feel like when he what he says last episode or the episode before is that he raised his hand to be the health commissioner because he didn't want to be called upon to be the sheriff. Right. So he was willing to take this position basically just to preempt the you know the idea because because a sheriff as a sheriff he probably expected he would have actual responsibility. So he decided to be the health commissioner, probably assuming that you know I wouldn't really have to do anything. It's just a title, and this way it protects me from having to do the thing I don't want to do here. Um, but I think it's also just his nature that once he's taken this on, he kind of, he feels like, you know, he feels like he has to do something and he is also kind of protecting himself if consequences ever, you know, come down on the town, um, that it has to look like, at least look like he did something. Right, right, right. Um, but no, you're right. It's interesting. We haven't learned a lot about why Seth, uh, came to Deadwood still, even, you know, this late in the first season, Mm. but this is, and this is really the first glimpse we've gotten of his motivations for coming here other than you know he didn't want to be a marshal anymore the idea that he didn't want to be responsible for other people um i think there might be some guilt associated with that again we don't know his full backstory but i wouldn't be surprised if there was some uh you know if he had a kind of a guilty conscience over not being able to fulfill that responsibility in some way right um you know, he's like he's running away from his uh, wife and uh, his brother's child. So <laughs> I think that's probably part of it, too. I would imagine that is. And he does he does bring that up specifically when he's talking to Saul a bit later. Um, but yeah, so it's it's cool to get some background on, on Seth. And it does continue to, uh, I don't know, hang hang that fruit of the... Uh, of his family showing up in Deadwood and what that's, you know, the drama that will cause when it, if, when or if it does happen. Um, and maybe how it'll throw off, uh, you know, balance of power and, you know, maybe he'll be distracted having to deal with that and won't be a thorn in Al's side anymore or, you know, who knows. Um, 
but you know they they just keep teasing it but they also keep teasing a little bit of um his you know weird flirtation thing with alma as well uh so yeah we don't really know where that's going um i do want to just briefly mention and i don't want to not that we're jumping through this episode kind of focuses on al so we can really i think put the the meat of the discussion on that but uh, i do want to just have a conversation about uh the scene at the hotel um, with uh, Merrick and um, Saul and Seth, uh, which, because it does follow from Seth. It's interesting, Seth's first inclination when he can't get through to Farnham, who is now the mayor, um, who nobody cares about or respects, um, which, by the way, historically, he was the mayor, uh, apparently, oh, wow. uh, of, of Deadwood, which is kind of, of funny. Of course he was. Um, but nobody cares, and you know Al instantly makes it clear that he doesn't have any regard for his title and 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 all that. Um, but when he doesn't want to build the infirmary or, or okay the infirmary and the money that will be required for that, um, Seth's first inclination is to go to the paper and try and force it using public pressure, which I find really I don't know to see Seth be the one to push that now because the last time we saw that something like this happen it was with the plague uh and now we're seeing um uh we're seeing seth use the press for his own not political i would say but kind of political machinations um and uh yeah so i i, I thought that was it was curious to see seth doing that because we always consider him sort of the moral character uh and then i also really like the conversation that ensues with with merrick but yeah i was wondering if you had any thoughts on on the concept of that, because once they once they establish that's what he's doing, they sort of brush it aside. But it is, it does set a precedent for how the paper will be used in the town. Yeah, well, I like um, Merrick being very clearly uh, just a tool of everyone around him. Oh yeah, um, because he, like we see in this scene, which I'm you know uh, excited to talk about because it's very funny. Um, <laughs> you know, he he very clearly he wants to be a friendly person, but it's he he doesn't belong there. He doesn't belong with any of these people. And it's clear to everyone else except him. Um, I kind of I sympathize with him in how he uh, he he's he's a guy who uh, speaks like he writes and pro and writes yeah. like he speaks, which I think something is, is something a lot of writers uh, can understand because there there should you know there should be a connection in, between those two things in some ways. Um, I think I don't think writing should be you know obtuse and kind of uh, you know. Yeah, I'm not saying that writing needs to be understandable to be good, you know, in terms of, like, I, I don't know, a novel. Um, but the writing that you and I do, I think it should not, I, I think it should be, you know, uh, comprehensible. I would hope so. Yeah, at, at the very least. Um, it, it shouldn't be like um, I'm kind of wading through, uh, you know, thesaurus words to, to arrive at your point, I feel like. Well, I mean, the writing we do theoretically is to convey a point right or to convey information and exactly. if we're not conveying that information easily then what are we doing and um, the idea so can I, be I, yeah the idea agree, can be yeah. complex there's a difference between the idea you're presenting being a complex idea and the language you're using to present it being too complicated to penetrate um but there can be a problem when uh those two things kind of cross over into each other and you end mm. up speaking in a way that really human beings shouldn't speak to each other <laughs> um, just because you're in a sort of more, in a more writerly mindset. And that's very clearly Merrick. That's Merrick all over. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, he, and it's, you know, he just doesn't seem to notice uh, 
just because that's the way he thinks. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, several episodes ago with the whole uh, the thing with Al and uh, free gratis. Free gratis, right. That was hilarious. Cause he's, and he seems so frustrated that Al, you know, didn't get what he was didn't get that they were saying the same thing, basically. Because right. <laughs> to him, well, it's he's like, focused on word choice and what you're using, and that that makes exactly. sense. But in this, the same, t- and it, you know, I would say honestly, I've si- I sided with Al on that one. You know, if no, yeah, absolutely. If Al, right, you know, if if the average yeah. person doesn't know what gratis means in Deadwood, then you're not really conveying your point, and it, there's no real point in using that word. Just say free, right? Um, and I think. I've certainly been accused of that in the past, um, but it's funny in terms of writing. But I'd never talk like I write. Like I don't tend. To, well, I don't think so. Maybe I do. I don't know. But I, I try not to speak with that, you know, the way Merrick does, because I think it, <laughs> it. First of all, it's not natural for me anyway, or maybe it is for him. But it almost feels like he's trying to, or like he ta- taught himself to speak that way. I, I don't know that he. It's hard to know if it's natural for him, but it, it it seems like he's trying to, you know, maintain his like, well, I'm a wordsmith, so I have to talk like this, sort of, uh, because when he's drunk, he doesn't know he doesn't always talk like this. It's only you know, sort of his when he's pontificating about life and the world. But what the the great irony of this this scene? So they sit down and they're having their conversation, and and uh, they get up and they go for a walk. Um, and I want to talk about all the things that lead up to that, but just <laughs> quickly on this point. Uh, when Merrick is trying to just simply say, like, I want to hang out with you guys, <laughs> he takes, you know, three paragraphs to say that, you know, <laughs> that's the problem, is that he, the point he's trying to communicate is so simple, and he's lost it in the words that he's using. Wait, Much it's, like yeah, I exactly. just did with it's, my point, you know. It's, well, it seems, I don't <laughs> know if it's born out of, like, it doesn't seem to be, like, you know, nervousness that of what he's asking, but it does, like, it's weird. I, the reason I think that it's not entirely intentional is that he he completely expects them to be following along with what he's saying, even though what he's saying, you know, it, it is difficult to follow. Right. When he's talking about, oh, and it, would it were it not true that uh, those memories and that, uh, right. you know, <laughs> he's like, what are you what are you getting at? Because he doesn't even start. He doesn't start with the context for what he's saying, right? So right. it's impossible. You know, it's not not impossible, but like it's. It's strange that he would expect them to be on board with what he's saying when he hasn't yet revealed, like, the point of what he's talking about. (laughs) And, of course, the point of what he's talking about is, like you said, just he wants to hang out with them. (laughs) And there's so much build-up to it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, And even the way that he, like, even the way that he presents that is so, like, weirdly, you know, formal. Like, it's not I want to hang out with you. It's like we should form a club of, uh, a you know, club. Yeah, yeah, the perambulators. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's just the way that that's just the way that he kind of conceives of the world and his interactions with other people is that level of you know of is that level of formality. Yeah, and I, I mean the ambulators. I mean, really, why? Like, why not just the walking club? Yeah. Why? The why not just walk around? <laughs> you don't need I... a name. Uh, or you could just yeah you don't even need a name like why are we going down this road uh and and they're also they're also you know willing they're so ready to you know extricate themselves from the situation they keep trying to make excuses to leave um and i do like that saul as always is the one who's like you know i really appreciated all of this and it was really nice talking to you and you know maybe i'll see you around again sometime and he's the only one trying to 
smooth over the awkwardness of Seth and Charlie being like, ah, we have things to do, so <laughs> I'll uh, catch you later. So yeah, I, I like the um, I like that that split. But anyway, leading up to that, uh, I, I really enjoyed um, a lot of the. There's a lot of little small things that go on in the hotel dining room. So I, why don't we why don't we just jump right into that? Um, so oh, there's one thing I really want to get to, but first we have them having a conversation about the uh, the the letter to the editor that Seth's writing to try and pressure Farnham into um, okaying the uh, the the infirmary. Um, but we also see a lot of interesting camaraderie between different characters. So we have uh, uh, Merrick uh, inviting Charlie to come for a walk with them. We have um, Joni seeing that Charlie's stuck and doesn't have a place to sit down and inviting him to come and sit with her. Uh, and I, I really like all of the these characters who, we, who we've come to appreciate as sort of the good guys, I guess, if there are such things. Um, uh, in the context of the Deadwood story, uh, you know, interacting and, and forming this these sort of relationships that we haven't necessarily seen yet, and we haven't seen like Merrick and Charlie interact before, for example, um, and the fact that they're all going for a walk together, even if it's a walk literally, like down the street and back up the street again, um, there's something just I don't know very pure and simple about the way we see relationships develop on the show that always feels very authentic. I agree, and it, you know. I think I wrote, and I might have even said this in a previous episode, now that the characters are so well-established individually, it really frees the show up to kind of spin them off and bounce them off each other yep. and pair them up in interesting ways. Um, this is something that Game of Thrones does a lot, or it did a lot at least, kind of in the middle years, where it would uh, just take two, char- two, in- two interesting characters and pair them up for a while and just sort of send them off and yeah, see but what happens. What's nice here, though, I mean, I like... I, I, those are my favorite kind of moments, and it's almost always on shows. I always love seeing unusual pairings, and even in Community or, you know, just random shows where characters who don't normally hang out hang out. I find it interesting because you get new dynamics you didn't get before. But on Game of Thrones, they would like go to another continent, <laughs> <laughs> and then we would they oh, wouldn't yeah. interact with anyone else for a while. Whereas here, you can have a fleeting moment, and I love this back and forth. With like, I don't think we're gonna see a relationship blossom between Charlie and Merrick, for example, necessarily. Um, but we see a, a, a beginning and an end, right? And so we see the, or so our call and response. We see uh, Merrick invite Charlie to go for a walk, which was just a nice thing he did out of, for no particular reason, I guess, because he wanted company. Um, and then we see Charlie defending Merrick for bumping into uh, when the guy gets all pissy for him bumping into when he's bending over uh, to pick up his glasses. So you sort of have this just nice little tight, self-contained little story of friendship that just blossomed in this one little moment um, that didn't require a whole episode of Merrick and Charlie going on an adventure together. And I just, I don't know, it's just, it's very small and intimate. No, well, I mean, I think this is a better written show than Game of Thrones <laughs> is, um, for sure. But I mean, it, it also has the effect of um, reminding us that this town is a cohesive place. It's a single place. mm uh, where I think maybe a worse written show would, by so frequently kind of quartering people in their own different storylines, um, even if they kind of cross over, it would be easy to forget that, like, 
this is all happening in the same town. <laughs> so right. to have these little moments where characters who might, may not even ever interact again just brush up against each other, and this is this is how these two characters interact, and now they're gone. Um, it's a great reminder that all of these things we're watching are happening at the same time, even if they never have a direct influence on each other. Right, exactly. And I, I think that's it, it does definitely further demonstrate the, as you said, the cohesive cohesiveness of the town and the fact that it really does feel lived in uh, which is funny because we um we were kind of teasing the idea of talking about westworld on here i don't think we're gonna even though yeah. i did end up liking it um but that's a show that doesn't know how to do that to the to the extent that there is a fan a prominent fan theory that literally there are two different secretly two different timelines on that show and the only reason <laughs> that theory makes sense is because characters really never interact with each other Oh, how interesting! <laughs> in that way, um, and I like I said, I I've like I like the first couple episodes of that show, which I didn't really expect, but um, that's a show that just isn't doing that. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's also really early in its run, to be fair. But I think the hallmark of a great show like this is that it will take the time to do these really subtle, kind of outside of the narrative moments, stuff that really doesn't matter. You know, finger quotes matter in the grand scheme of things, right? But it's still willing to kind of you know. Uh, make the effort to uh, make those things happen. Yeah, it, it, just speaking very briefly of um, of uh, that other Western uh, show that is making an appearance now, um, I do... Uh, it, it's something we had discussed maybe potentially covering uh, privately. We had mentioned covering it. Um, or, or the idea of that. And I was thinking that uh, just for, for listeners who are interested... Um, if we do cover Westworld at some point, uh, maybe we might jump in, maybe with season two, if it gets picked up, which I think it probably will at this point. Oh, I, uh, I think it probably by, will. <laughs> and by that point, I would imagine we'll, we'll finish Deadwood. Uh, I just, I thought it would be cool to have this comparison of these two Western HBO shows. And, you know, obviously they're... Well, there is definitely, there is definitely a comparison to be made, and um, especially, the, I, I, we won't get into a tangent about Westworld, but... The clearest. I haven't seen I it think, at all, so I don't know. Comparison and disparity is uh, the. We talked in the very first episode about it, the set design of Deadwood and how it oh, immediately yeah. feels like a real place. Um, that's not the case on Westworld, but it works because it's not a real place. It's right. supposed to feel kind of fakey and artificial, right. and like this, you know, the streets in Westworld are so wide, um, like crazy wide, for instance. Whereas oh, they're a lot more cramped in Deadwood, which mm-hmm. I think is more realistic. Which is funny because uh, there's I only like is. two. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the other. That's part of it too. You know. Um, so you know, there's only like uh, so many. I think we only see the inside of like two or three buildings <laughs> total. Right. Um, which is true on this show too, but it's uh, it, it because of the way that different characters kind of cycle in and out, it gives it that more uh, lived. In, it, it makes it it makes it acceptable that we don't have so many interiors because they feel fresh every time we see them. Right, right, and also we accept the idea of there only you know when you when you have an entire city like in Game of Thrones and you only see like one room or two rooms, yeah, <laughs> or like for example, just not to ruin anything in Game of Thrones for people who don't watch that show, and this is isn't a spoiler at all, but throughout all of the last season, every time they had something dealing with this one character, the high sparrow, they always shot scenes in this one chamber, this stone chamber. And, like, every episode with him would be shot in this one chamber, which made 
this massive capital building that's supposed to have all these interesting rooms and whatever feel very small. <laughs> yeah. And it was it wasn't even like this is the High Sparrow's office or something. It was yeah, just no. a room that he was always in for some reason. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that was the so but here we accept it because we're like, well, you know, of course it's in one of these buildings. There's only like four buildings in Deadwood. <laughs> you know, so we we forgive it for that reason. But in Game of Thrones, they make a point in the intro sequence of showing you how vast this world is supposed to be. And then they pigeonhole us. And now I understand budgets and stuff. Obviously, you can't have the level of Deadwood detail in every location in Game of Thrones. It's absurd, right? But it does contrast for sure, uh, especially when you keep showing the same room over and over again. Whereas here, it doesn't because we accept Deadwood as a small little frontier town. Um, so yeah, uh, I think, oh, the, the thing I really wanted to mention in this moment, just to go all the way back to the, uh, hotel, um, I had mentioned last episode and it was totally just sort of going out on a limb, uh, that I really liked this motif of quote unquote good characters, um, making faces at Sophie, the girl, and then having that little back and forth between them, um, as a sign that this this character is is you know a good character because a bad character wouldn't do that and so it became this like motif and I my two examples were Doc Cochran and um, uh, Ellsworth and that's not really enough for a trend but here we now we get Charlie doing it as well so now we have three characters who interact with Sophie in sort of a friendly way which mm-hmm. I think uh, confirms her as sort of a barometer of uh, of character which is cool I like it. Um, yeah, like I mean, it it makes her uh, kind of relevant to what's going on. Yeah, because she's not. <laughs> well, well, well past her direct, uh, you know, relevance to the narrative. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a really interesting uh, point, and it's it it has been bearing out after, since you've said it. And I wasn't <laughs> sure. expecting it because I, I had forgotten. So I, I, it's not like I was like, oh yeah, next episode Charlie winks at her. You know, no, I I didn't remember <laughs> that. Um, so that's uh, that's funny, and and so just and also speaking of storylines that have or you know aspects of storylines that have persisted, we have uh, uh, Sophie, but also uh, you know Bullock's. You had mentioned this whole thing about the scar and the cut, whatever. He's still got that going on. Yeah. Uh, in episode Impressive. ten, so we'll see if that continues into season two or not, or even through the end of the season. Uh, but I think that that's kind of cool. Um, so I guess do you want to just move in? Woo, I guess is. First time we we were introduced to Mr. Wu as a well, I think that yeah, because everything else pretty much is Al. So let's just start there. Well, everything else except for there's a little bit about Joni and Eddie. As well. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I mean, why don't you... we just do that first because it's a, yeah, it's a short short. That's moment. a good idea. Um, because especially since we just mentioned Charlie, so Charlie, we had this nice callback between Joni and Charlie. Um. Just referring, it's funny because they don't really have much to talk about. They have nothing in common, but they just, you know, he's checking with her to see how her little venture is going, and they have this conversation. And then she gives him an out so that he can go and this on this walk with the guys, you know. <laughs> and it's kind of a cute moment, but that storyline gets picked up a little bit later when Joni and Eddie are uh, meet up, and uh, Eddie proposes robbing Sai. Um, uh, and then rather theatrically reveals that he already ro- robbed Sai, uh, and that that's how he's going to fund, um, uh, he's going to help fund Joni so that she doesn't have to take money from, uh, from Sai Tolliver. So that's, that uh, definitely sets something up. Uh, was the pocket watch from Sai? Maybe I misread that. I thought it was hers. Oh, I assumed it was. 
I, I, I thought it was hers because he asks her, like, what's the time? And then she, like, goes, to, I thought she was going to grab oh. her pocket watch, but then he reveals so that, like, he's, oh, he did that he lifted it from her. Yeah. Uh, that would make Which more I guess sense, it, wouldn't it? I mean, I, <laughs> that's how I read it. Okay. It, yeah, because it seemed I'm, like I'm a very, like, a very, like, magician uh, thing to do. Um, I also, have I mean, this time. Tells us a lot, this tells us a lot about Eddie that we hadn't... Uh, we, well, it makes sense, because, I mean, this know. whole thing is that he did the dice thing, right? The loaded dice. Oh, yeah, well, and he, he's, like, the floor, the, the casino floor guy, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense that he... But it also kind of, I think, has some implications to uh, their mysterious past as as probable criminals... Um, the right. idea that Eddie could be a like pickpocket, I guess, uh, I think probably suggests that he was a you know <laughs> that, that that that's what he did right. in whatever like you know scams they used to pull or whatever they used to do. Um, right when it was it was so, Tolliver's I mean, three or Tolliver's four instead of Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, <laughs> um, I I don't know if stealing from Psy bodes super well for Eddie, if only because yeah. you know of all people, if you're gonna of all people you're going to try to pull this on, I don't think that, you know, someone who you used to do it with all the time <laughs> is the best choice, especially since he's just seen, you know, how brutally he, that side treated those kids for trying right. to steal from him. So, But it it's cool to see that immediate retaliation of the way he treated him last episode to now he's like, let's rob him. I'm done with this guy. Yeah, it, well, yeah, exactly. And it, <laughs> I, I think maybe my fear is that I... I get the impression that uh, Psy is a character who will persist on the show, whereas Eddie, I think, feels a little more disposable. Mm. So, I don't know. I, Maybe it's I just do worry I about that, too, and I, again, uh, don't remember. Through. So, I'm not even being uh, cute here. I don't know. Uh, but you're right. I do get the impression that Eddie's more expendable uh, than Psy. Um, yeah. So, we'll, we'll see how that goes down. I think it, it's... <laughs> it's kind of a cynical scene as well because you know it takes place in the room that he had murdered these kids and where Joni has to still live you know and stay and that was the last person who tried to pull one over on size so it's you know it's definitely foreboding um but we'll see um and it also raised questions right if if Eddie gets caught or in trouble or you know gets killed or something um you know will it have blowback on Joni will she be implicated you know it's not really clear um because so far he's been really forgiving to her and her, you know, whatever she's... Not that she did anything wrong necessarily, but, you know, like she was willing to let uh, Flora go and all the rest of it, and she never really took any of the flack or blame for it. But, you know, I'm sure that he has his limits on uh, what he'll forgive if he finds out that, like, Eddie and and uh, she and Eddie were conspiring against him. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. I have no idea. Uh... I genuinely can't remember. So yeah, we get a lot of Al stuff this episode. So I guess we'll start with Mr. Wu, because that kicks off, I think, the main plot of this episode. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, the title plot of this episode. Well, the title plot of this episode, yeah, Mr. Wu. So I forgot how much I love this character and uh, his interactions with Al and just everything about it so <laughs> it had been so long that I, I i didn't really remember but i know for so many episodes you had been like I, they keep showing this character he must have some relevance later on yeah um well now you've got it <laughs> well, so they, and they was... kept referring to him too so i was oh, surprised yeah. that he hadn't although i mean you know it makes sense now that he uh, 
what had surprised me in the past was that, yeah, they keep showing this guy, they keep referring to him as, uh, he clearly has an integral role in the uh, nastier doings of the uh, kind of, you know, people like Al. So it was like, why, you know, why haven't we talked to this guy yet? Well, the reason is that he doesn't really speak English. Right. Um, so that makes sense in retrospect. Um, yeah, Mr. W- I mean, on a broader sense, I had been waiting to explore this, like, uh, kind of Chinese section of town because we really haven't at all right. so far. Um, and Wu, we learn in this episode, is, like, uh, kind of uh, not not in charge, but he's, like, uh, you know... He's the guy people go to, I think, is the implication, if there's a problem or if uh, something needs to get done. He's sort of like Al in that way, basically. I was going to say, is... he, he is basically, and I think there's, I really want to talk about that, but I think he really is, uh, in many ways, Al's equivalent in the Chinese community of, of Deadwood. Which uh, I think is why Al is so, like, we'll we'll talk about this in greater detail, but it's why Al throughout the episode is so kind of hesitant. To, like, he wants to make it right, you know what I mean? Oh, Whereas absolutely. Every, everyone else around him is saying, who cares, you know? It's, you know, what, what's the big deal? It's just some, you know, <laughs> Chinese slur, uh, right. you know. But he is like, and he kind of, like, makes excuses for it, and he makes a show of, like, oh, you know, these people, I don't really care about them. Um, but it's clear that he does care about uh, Mr. Wu, and he cares oh, about absolutely. making it right. And I, yeah, their interaction is fascinating, and it's stuff that I, my first, on my first viewing of this, the show, I hadn't really um, registered because I wasn't necessarily looking for this. But th- their relationship is fascinating to me. Um, but so it, the way it starts, the way they're, in, and by the way, I just want to give give a shout out um, uh, to Keon Young, who who uh, has been in lots of shows, perhaps most relevant to us. Uh, he played Zhang Zhang on uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender, which uh, we're both huge fans of, uh, and uh, he played like a small bit role in uh, Legend of Korra, which we did a podcast on. So um, he's been in those, and he's done a lot of voice acting, but he's also been in a lot of TV shows. Uh, he's been in in quite a few movies, and he's sort of one of those actors that you've seen but don't necessarily know the name of the actor, but he's almost always in something in some capacity. Um, so he's really great, but here he has a much more significant role, and I think a lot of people remember Mr. Wu from from Deadwood. Um, and uh, so yeah, it's cool seeing him here, and he's <laughs> I just love his I I don't. Know. He's got this indignation about everything that happens in this episode. He's just, I mean, it, it, there's certainly other. It's not. It's not his only mode of of interaction. But it generally, especially in the beginning, he's just so outraged by what has happened to his um, opium that I just love the the energy he brings into the room, especially as it contrasts with with Al, who's just trying to understand what he's saying and and get on his and be like, no, I'm also angry with you. We're both angry about the same thing. I just can't communicate with you at all. So <laughs> this is very confusing to me. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, I really like uh, his performance in this, and it's a good uh, it's a good mix with Ian McShane's. Uh, yeah, very good mix with Ian McShane's, whose brand of anger is not quite so explosive. Um, yeah, so and like you said, he's trying to make it clear, like, no, we're bo- like we're on the same page about this. I'm furious, but he his fury is a lot more uh, subdued, I guess. Right, right, um, right. I do want to talk about just the horrible racism in this episode. Oh my gosh, um, isn't it astounding? It's really, really, yeah. I mean, this is obviously not a show that has really shied away from that up to nope. this point. Um, and also, I think it's interesting that we have the first uh, black character, I think, on the entire show this far show yep. up in this episode. Yep. As well, and we maybe we'll talk about that too a little later. But I have, you said he, you said he's more important later on, so 
Hostetler, yeah, I mean, it's important he's the first black character to really show up on the show, and, and that brings in the element of black people on this show, which had not been really addressed at all thus far, um, but does does place into how things go down. Uh, but yeah, I think race is a huge component. I mean, it's a component of the show, um, but this episode in particular and, and their interactions with Mr. Wu in that part of town is definitely uh, predicated on uh, how the white uh, uh, citizens see themselves versus the Chinese uh, citizens. And I think... Um, I think we actually get some commentary from the show itself on that, uh, which we don't often get. I think the show weirdly stays pretty neutral on a lot of issues that are pretty black and white, not to use that phrase in this context, but that are very, you know, morally, like, you know, racism is bad is not a, a radical statement to make. But the show doesn't generally really take that approach. It doesn't go like, that, that should be condemned. And there's no character who goes, oh, this should be, you know maybe we shouldn't talk like that. There's, that doesn't really happen in the show. Um, probably because it wouldn't really make a whole lot of sense for that to happen. Um, but the, I think they do in this context and it's, it's a lot more subtle uh, and it's in the way this whole story about the opium um, uh, addicts is wrapped up towards the end. Um, but anyway, so, so Wu comes in, he comes in the front. Uh, an interesting little theme of this episode is, Al trying to maintain appearances um, of the gem, which is hilarious because it's literally a brothel slash gambling den slash <laughs> bar. And he's like, no, I can't have any Chinese people here. You're going to throw off my image. And also I can't have any preachers here. You're going to throw off my image. Like <laughs> he keeps, he keeps doing that throughout the episode, which I, I just, I find ironic just conceptually. Um, so, uh, Mr. Wu comes in. Johnny's horrified that he's coming in the front door, but he's livid, so he, you know, and Al is like, whatever, and then just invites him up, and uh, they have their little uh, conversation about how uh, apparently some of his, um, some of his people had been uh, killed by two white guys who stole all the opium, um, and, and it's all done pictorially on paper, which I really appreciated as well. Um, yeah, so. What did you what did you make of this this uh, this storyline? I like that they're bringing back these characters we've compl- kind of I don't know I kind of forgot about um, from from earlier episodes. Uh, Jimmy and um, what's the other guy's name? Leon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's um, like you say. It doesn't. There's not like a real moral in terms of the racism. There's not a character who's like you know maybe all this racism is actually bad. <laughs> and then like, you know, maybe, maybe someday people will understand, you know, that doesn't happen. It, it treats its audience intelligently in that I think it treats the fact that racism is bad as sort of self-evident. Uh-huh. I think it expects you to understand, uh, you know, that these characters are acting really uh, awfully <laughs> towards Mr. Wu and uh, the other Chinese people in Deadwood. And it doesn't need, you know, a character who's like, well, oh, we, well, you know, we, we shouldn't say that. We shouldn't, it, it does, that doesn't need to happen. Um, first of all, we, because that probably wouldn't happen at the time there, pro- even if there were people who believed that there probably wouldn't be people who would say it. Right. Um, so it, I like that it respects its audience enough to trust that they will, uh, you know, see what happens in this episode 
and not it's also it's say, also not subtle racism right these aren't like micro yeah exactly i mean the first like, thing we see like is that curling slurs that are obviously so out of date oh, <laughs> slurs i've never even heard of yeah <laughs> um yeah and you know the first thing we see that happens in this episode practically is that uh yeah he's horrified that Wu is coming through the front door and he like shuts the front doors to make sure no one else could see that he's here right because right, right. you know oh my goodness the impropriety um, yeah, the, just the fact that they're treating someone of a different race as, you know, just just his presence is uh, something horrifying and something that needs to be rectified. Just the fact that his, you know, that he is existing in the same space as them. Um, that that level of racism <laughs> is really extraordinary to witness. Yeah, and it, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it obviously plays out even more when we get into more of the... Uh, like when he talks to Sai later in the episode, and I think when he talks to the uh, messenger guy who says the same thing, is like, "Look, you know, these, uh, yeah, I understand what happened, but these are, you know, these guys are white, and he's not. So, you know, that the idea that that alone kind of trumps the actions of uh, the two junkies. Like, well, you know, they did what they did. They did something bad, but you know, they're white, and they didn't do it to a white right. person. So, they, w- what are we supposed to do? <laughs> like, that's the attitude." Um, and I think and it's, I, I, it's it's also just uh, jumping back really quickly the fact that um, they have this problem with Mr. Wu showing up in at the gym shows levels of racism towards different groups right so yeah. yes Al is very anti-Semitic but he doesn't have a problem with Saul being in the gym right mm-hmm. Saul can come in the front door uh, Mr. Wu can't Hostetler comes into uh, uh uh, the hardware store. I don't know if he can come into the gym, but at least he comes into the hardware store. No problem. And in fact, he comes there to do business of some sort, which we don't really know anything well, about. Well, also yet. interesting, yeah, we, you recall that um, Al has a picture of Abraham Lincoln on the wall in the sure gym. Sure does. So we don't know his, uh, we don't know his opinion on African Americans, <laughs> um, but I think that might be that might you be and it's also knows. an interesting statement to put Abraham Lincoln on the wall because that would probably very controversial this was shortly after the the civil war right well he talks about that does i don't remember exactly what he says but i think he talks about exactly that he talks Um, about something about it being maybe a kind of uh controversial thing to have on the wall maybe it's screwing up business i think he says something like that um yeah but the fact that it was after i mean even now you still see people who can't get over the fact that the civil war ended the way it did you know, I mean, <laughs> you can yeah. imagine immediately after to to do that in the, you know, in the frontier where you probably have people from all bat different backgrounds and certainly maybe former, you know, soldiers. It's well, I, think it's also pro- I think it's also probably, you know, because we talk about keeping up appearances like, uh, yeah, at this point, the union had won. Right. Um, and those are the people who are coming in and possibly going to absorb Deadwood uh, into the rest of the country. So if he does want to make a good impression then he probably wants to make it as clear as he possibly can with this gigantic portrait uh, that he was on the right side of that conflict, whether right. he actually was or not. Right. Although technically he was in no. Chicago, which is, my, I guess, was north. North? Yeah. Um, so yeah. I guess that, you know, he kind of already was in that. But yeah, exactly. Allying yourself with the the, the, the winners, the victors, is probably smart. Um but yeah, who knows what Al's opinion is? We haven't heard the one racial group you know we haven't really heard his opinion on yet <laughs> are black people. So I guess we'll maybe be treated to that uh, at some point. Um, somehow I don't have a lot of faith that it's going to be particularly charitable. 
No, me neither. <laughs> Especially not. I don't. I don't have a lot of faith in any white characters' uh, racial opinions after this episode. Yeah, yeah, not really. Except um, for, except, maybe except like, I guess for uh, for Seth and uh, Saul. And, and Saul. But... Yeah, I was gonna say they're pretty. They seem pretty okay. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I really I want to talk about um. So we get we get they get this negotiation where they basically and and Al's already figured out. Um, oh, before we, before we jump into the next Wu scene, I do want to just have this conversation about um, uh, this scene where uh, Al confronts uh, who is it uh, Jimmy about his <laughs> the fact that he robbed um, that he that he stole this opium yeah, and he's completely oh, lying. Wow. I mean, so evidently lying. Um, and then it ends with him throwing himself off. Well, he poops in his pants, and then he's uh, told to throw himself off the balcony, which he does, uh, which is really remarkable. This whole scene is pretty remarkable, that, that Al doesn't really do anything to him. He hits him once, um, and all of it is is just Jimmy freaking out. Uh, yeah, there's a running theme of like people, uh, you know, soiling themselves in various ways like fouling <laughs> fouling up al's office which i think is really funny because i mean it's always funny when it happens because al is this very serious figure and right. he's doing his most serious business when he's in his office um you know like someone farting in his office in i think the second episode um there have been a there have been a couple more that i can't well, i know there's also have. uh when nick offerman's character you know was naked in his office there's always somebody right. doing something kind of exactly there's always someone kind of intruding and um it makes it seem not less serious, I guess, but it does kind of, you know, break the tension of yes, whatever Al yes. is doing. And it also can maybe kind of reveals it to not be... It undercuts Al. Al is always getting undercut when he's in his office. That's um, true. Which is, I can imagine, is probably frustrating <laughs> for him. Because yeah. um, this is supposed to be the place where he is in the ultimate position of power. Um, people are coming to him, and he is exerting his power over them. Right. And the fact that they just keep, like... Uh, you know, wrecking it in various embarrassing ways right. is an interesting motif. Even um, Leon throws up. Yeah, later. I was gonna say later in this episode, Leon vomits all over the floor. <laughs> um, so it's something that keeps happening, and it's uh, <laughs> it's it's, funny. it's like reliable at this point. Yeah, uh, that someone's gonna do something dumb. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it just it was it was a it's it's such a bizarre scene where he's like he's like act, he he says I can smell that you're you're lying. Uh, and then it turns out that that's, you know, he was actually smelling something. Um, I'm just, just like, what <laughs> is going on in the scene? And then when he says what's, what's going on. And then, you know, when he asked him to throw himself off the balcony and I'm like, why is he actually going to do that? Yeah. Yeah. He actually did. And then he says, stay there until I come down and get you no moving. <laughs> you have to stay in the mud. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just humiliating. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was something. Um, so, after he's figured out the whole situation and, and who did what, he has this, you know, problem of Leon, who was a uh, size informant character person, and uh, Jimmy, who was his uh, informant character person, uh, are both the ones who are implicated in this uh, conundrum. Uh, and he has to negotiate with Wu. And it's all in the context of, you know, what can he do as a white person in the town when the victims of this whole situation were... Chinese people. And uh, amidst this negotiation, we see some really interesting, really cool 
back and forth between him and Wu that I think really uh, fleshes out their characters individually and also, you know, their relationship. Um, so they have this great, I love this scene where they meet in the uh, the meat locker thing. Is that what it is? It's like I figure. guess so, yeah. Um, so first of all, I love that Al, so there's a lot of, I in my opinion, a lot of really clear demonstrations of uh, mutual respect um, between the two of them. So uh, you have uh, Mr. Wu, they have the negotiations where they're able to come to a conclusion and, and sort of put things together even though they can't really communicate in a meaningful way. Um, and then you have uh, Mr. Wu giving Al free meat. Uh, then you have Al, both when he comes in and as he's going, bigging Wu up, which you don't know when you first see him going in, where he's just spouting things off about how he's going to get fleeced out of all his money um, and that he's angry or whatever, uh, which of course he isn't when he comes in. You know, he's very clearly, you know, just there to talk to him. Uh, and then as he comes out, he says the same thing like, oh, you know, I got fleeced out of all my money. I had to spend all this extra money just to get, you know, a little bit of meat and this is ridiculous. But of course we got, you know, he got the meat for free and he did it all. And he says explicitly, I did this to, you know, make him seem like a, you know, a big guy in front of his, you know, yeah. compatriots. Which Dan, uh, what's funny is like Dan, uh, yeah, Dan doesn't pick up on that in that scene. So he tries to do like what we were talking about Saul did earlier with Merrick. He like tries to smooth it over. He's like, oh, but it's, you know, but it's good. It's good meat. It's good. <laughs> yeah. Like he doesn't want to, like he, like he's trying to cover for Al basically, but he doesn't get that Al is doing it very intentionally. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I, I like, I just like that they and 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 there's also that moment in the the meat locker thing where they're talking about um, where Al says to him he says you and I didn't get and we have talked me and you have talked about this in the past but uh, you and I have talked about this in the past but um, he says you know we didn't get where we are by just killing everybody who should be dead even though there's a lot of people who should be dead. Um, you can't just kill everyone, right? And that's what I had said when, because you know, we had said, "Oh, he hasn't killed anyone in a while." And I think I said something along the lines of, "You know, if he killed everyone, he doesn't have anyone to, you know, rule over or, or to, you know, manipulate. He's got to have somebody left. He can't kill all his henchmen who screw up. He can't kill Farnum and everyone else just because they're annoying or they, you know, try and get one over on him because, you know, there's a limit." Um, and he says this to Wu, but the other thing that's so it's it's cool to get that insight into Al explicitly but also that he says you and i didn't get where we are by just you know killing away our problems implying a sense of parity between them and at least in their respective communities yeah well it's like we were talking about earlier it's there there's a very clear sense that Wu is to his community as al is to al's community and al is the only one who you know he's the only unlike sai who is a you know kind of he is a community leader in his own right, even though he's very new to Deadwood. Um, he can't recognize that, or he refuses to recognize that because of, you know, Wu's race. Uh, he refuses to kind of see any of them as capable... Uh, really, I think, as similar to the white people in town, probably. Right. Um, I don't think he would admit any kind of uh, comparison whatsoever. Um, but Although Al... he, does make a good, he does make a good argument on why it should be Jimmy and not Leon. Because there's no relationship between Sai and Mr. Wu. Whereas he knows that there's a relationship between Mr. Wu and Al. So he's like, of course you want to appease him. You guys have a 
a relationship or like a business relationship and I don't. So why would I get rid of my guy? Like you have a reason to appease him. So it's, it's the, I have leverage over you. In addition to that, they're white. Why are we even talking about this? But, but his initial argument is actually pretty sound um, in that yeah, yeah. Um, discussion. Ra- yeah, yeah, if he hadn't said the racist part, then he, it would make perfect sense. Right, right. <laughs> Without the racism, uh, he, has a, he has a point. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I, I agree. And I think the other thing that's important is that Sai is new to town. He doesn't have those connections with the community. I think Al, to some degree, feels... I don't want to say responsible, and certainly I don't think he particularly cares about, you know, the Chinese citizens of Deadwood, you know, in any meaningful sense. But he does feel connection to the town. It definitely, we get that impression, he does feel protective of the town as an entity, and maintaining the order of the town is important to him. Um, And, you know, whether or not it's the part we don't look at or talk about or engage with uh, or not, the Chinese, you know, neighborhood is part of Deadwood itself. And so it requires maintenance. And so he sees the value in that, whereas Sai is like, you know, why are we even doing this? On the other hand, we do know Sai set up, a, or at least bought a plot of land in that part of town. So, you know, it's not really clear. Well, we know uh, that Sai dealt directly with Mr. Wu because we know he fed those the kids to, his, to the pigs. He did. Um, he did, but so he doesn't have a, some like kind a drug of dealing. deal set up. Yeah. But, um, yeah he, but he has dealt with him. He definitely knows who he is. Um, but he just really has no respect for him whatsoever. Right, exactly. Um, but I do, yeah, so I, I, I just, I like I like the that Al, at least in private, he won't say it publicly, but in private he's very, he doesn't talk down to Wu at all. I don't think he, you know, he he's still a racist, he's still all the rest of it, but I think that's, that's very honest. But I think the way he's like, oh, you know, we don't get along in public, and then in private he's very... He's, he, he doesn't, like, go, like, why are you bothering me with this? He's like, no, this is something that needs to be rectified. Somebody needs to pay for this. I completely agree with you. You know, we're, we're, we're see, we see eye to eye on this, and we're definitely partners on this, and we are, have a, a certain level of um, uh, peer respect for each other. And I, I just, I like that uh, in the sense of this episode. But I think it's, you know, I, I had been talking about, I had mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I think this episode is about Al in a more protagonist sort of role, not that he's a good guy, you know, protagonists don't have to be good guys, but that we're trying to see him succeed, we're trying to see him navigate the politics of, you know, keeping his, his, you know, it almost feels like a much less, you know, farcical version of, you know, Faulty Towers, you know, he's trying to keep his hotel running, but he's trying not to piss people off and keep everybody happy, and, you know, and he's like, you know, the reverend keeps coming in and out of, you could almost see how this could be an episode of Faulty Towers in a very different context, right, where this annoying character keeps coming back in and sort of killing the vibe, and he needs to get them out, but he also has to deal with this other situation, and, um, you know, with the, with the, the, the dope dealers, and, you know, even though all the, like, on paper, what he's doing, he's trying to decide who to kill. You know, yes, that is a bad thing. That is a bad guy sort of thing. But we're rooting for him to figure out the solution to this problem. So he does, in effect, sort of become the protagonist, at least, in, you know, to my view. Well, I mean, if we take the, if we take that definition of protagonist, then I, you know, <laughs> I don't feel that Al ever wasn't a protagonist of this show. Um, in the sense that... It, it's rare that we've seen, you know, he he butted heads with Seth a lot in the early going, 
but there was never enough there that I felt like we were meant to take sides between the two of them. I think we were probably meant to take sides with Seth. Um, but there was never enough where it really felt like, you know, we're, we're pitting these two against each other and one of them is, uh, you know, you, you want one of them to succeed and the other one to fail. They were just right. people with different interests and they've since kind of put that, you know, they're clearly kind they, they rub up against each other, but, uh, they have put kind of the antagonistic part of that relationship, you know, to bed at least a little bit. And now they're working together more mutually. So I don't really feel... I, I don't know. I, I agree with you. I just don't know if how much of this episode represents a kind of turn in that sense. Yeah, maybe it's um, just because we followed him so much in this episode. I mean, We it's, do follow him more in this episode than in previous ones. He's that's, not just interacting with major storylines. He is... It's one consistent storyline that breaks off a little bit here and there, but it's mostly all about his, you know... Al's very frustrating day, <laughs> and and it is, you know, um, it, we should probably talk about the Reverend. There's no way of getting around it. I yeah, think. Uh, I was gonna say we should. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like this is your least favorite part of well, all these it's conversations. Well, so sad, and it only gets it, well because it, it's not my least favorite part because I do, you know, it's really it's a really compelling storyline. Oh, of course, but yeah, yeah. It is, yeah. It, it feels like I don't say this is a criticism. What I'm about to say, it really does feel like we're kind of repeating the same scene every week, but it just deteriorates more and more. Oh I mean, God, his condition yes. deteriorates more and more, um, which is all you know. Yeah, but this I think this week tragic. was particularly bad. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, I mean, first of all, the first time we see him um, with the whatever's going on with his eye, oh, um, and you know, Al is like cordial with him. I gotta say. No, I actually really, I, I, this is important to me, the, the relationship between him and Al. Al is so, and this is again another, this is another thing that fed into my protagonist view of him. He really is trying not to lose it with, <laughs> with the Reverend. He does it twice. The first time he's, he's gen, you know, he sees him, he's like, all right, what's he doing here? All right. He sits down, he has a conversation with him. And, uh, he first genuinely asks after his, you know, the eye thing. Uh, and then when he sees, you know, and then he's like, all right, now you got to go. You know, like, you know, I'm sorry about your eye, but you got to go. Then he gets up, and when he sees that he's having trouble walking, he even, he, like, gives him, you know, something, someone, a uh, shoulder to lean on, and, like, gives, like, helps him out of the, the, the saloon. Um, which he absolutely, like, I don't think we've ever seen Al do that to anyone ever. Uh he was genuinely ready to help and mentions his brother again. Um, and I, it's just, you clearly there was a, a, a real sense of sympathy there. Um, and then when he shows up again later, when, when the Reverend shows up again later, uh, and he comes in and he's already livid from everything else that's gone down throughout the day. Um, he almost immediately cools off. So he like charges at, he tells, he, he lets out his anger on everyone else and then when he talks to the Reverend, he's like, you know, are, you know, are, I told you you have to leave. And midway through his sentence, his like voice breaks and he comes down and he's, he realizes that, you know, he feels really bad for this, this guy. And then when he real you know, he, the, it becomes evident that the Reverend doesn't remember this conversation they had just had earlier in the day. He becomes even more, you know, sympathetic and, and sort of distraught and he can't even deal with it and he's so upset about it at least in my view that he asks i think johnny to you know see him out of the the gem 
Um, and it's just this moment of just, I think Al genuinely cares about the Reverend or, or, or is sympathetic to whatever's going on with him to the point where he even asks the doctor later, what's, you know, you know, what is the hell is wrong with this guy? Um, which he again, doesn't have to do. He has nothing to gain by asking after helping the Reverend in any way. He doesn't get anything out of that. So we know it has to be entirely altruistic. Um, yeah, it's. I, I completely agree with you. It's a side. You know, Al, Al has so many sides. So when I say it's a side <laughs> of him, we don't have to see. That's you know not saying much. And they don't feel but... contradictory either. Exactly. No, it, that's that's what's so great about this character is he can have a moment. He can have moments like this, which are so at odds with, you know, what we see of him even in this very same episode. But it doesn't feel contradictory. It feels like a cohesive whole uh, person. And I. I I mean, God, the writing is just so good. <laughs> it is, and and seriously, you can see why he always ends up on the top, you know, lists of of great characters, uh, television characters. Because, I mean, I can't really think of any other characters who are nearly as interesting as he is. I think maybe the closest I ever came to him, um, and it's just funny because I don't often speak well of Breaking Bad, not because I don't like it, but just because I, you know, it's fine. Um, is Gus Fring? Uh, I actually, I don't think he's as complex just because the show doesn't give him nearly as much time as, as Al, but the stony like face we get from Gus is then supported with a lot of backstory about where, you know, how he started um, with his, you know, the beginnings of his relationship with all these other characters in that show. And I think that gave him a lot of dimensionality that we don't often get. Uh, I would say probably the closest to Al would be somebody like from Avatar, like Zuko or something, where we get so many dimensions to the same character. Um, and yet, what's interesting is that Zuko evolves and grows over the course of three seasons into, and that's why we get all this dimensionality, um, in in part. Uh, whereas Al is not really growing; he just is a very multi-dimensional character from the onset. He hasn't changed since the beginning. Well, yeah, I mean, there's this there's this fallacy that I think you hear from, you know, I, I think it must be propagated by, like, screenwriting 101 classes and books. <laughs> you know, people always say, oh, the, the characters don't change at all in the movie. They don't change. They don't have to. You, the characters don't have to, you know, go on this, you know, three-act arc, and they've, you know, they've changed by the end of it. That doesn't have to happen for the characters to be good, complex characters. It's all in how they are written and presented and Al is a great example. He is a really complicated, multifaceted character, and we see that to such a great extent just in these just in these ten episodes that we've watched so far. And Al hasn't changed a bit. He hasn't changed one iota. I would say this episodes. episode captures almost like you know almost all of his sides, and it's just one episode. Uh, you know, and he hasn't you know nothing's changed between now and and when it started, or be- between the beginning of the episode and the end of the episode for him. As a character, he hasn't really changed, um, and yet we get to see all of these different elements of him. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and you're right. This is probably the most uh, different sides of him we've seen in a single episode so far. And yeah, I mean, I don't want I I don't want him to go on an arc of where where this character changes because there is so much to him to explore already. Um, you know, like what we learned in this episode. You know, we were, you were talking earlier about. How he doesn't kill people, uh, you know, even if they even if they really need killing, because you know there's a it, w- it wouldn't necessarily benefit him. 
But then when he talks with the messenger about the guy he killed in Chicago, he says, you know, would it, ma- would it make a difference if I told you this guy really needed to die? Right. So just based on what we know about him so far, that has some really powerful implications about whatever the, whoever this guy was that he killed back in Chicago must have been must have done really something bad. really heinous. Exactly, to him. yeah. And maybe something personal to him. Oh, it must I mean it must have been, yeah. Like did he kill his brother? Did he kill, you know, like what happened with this? It, this he guy? does keep mentioning the brother. I wouldn't be surprised if it has something to do with that. Some connection or maybe it was somebody he loved or, you know, maybe he had a wife or, you know, we really don't know anything about Al's past. Um it really could be anything. Uh so yeah, yeah, and and I and I like seeing it you know, I like that we get information about his story through his interactions with or his backstory through interactions with current characters. So his interaction with the Reverend, we often the only reason we've heard about the brother twice now is because of the seizure and now um their interaction here. Um and it's kind of a cool way to introduce these elements of, of Al's past, which is clearly quite interesting and something the show keeps hinting at but never really wants to give us the full story on. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's definitely significant, uh, just to follow, just split off and follow the Reverend really briefly. Um, so he's really, he's not doing well. The doctor says he has a tumor. Um, he's, yeah, we got to do the scene in the, the hardware store. Um, Yeah. (laughs) so this, this destroyed me. This was so awful. (laughs) <laughs> this is but I this is one of my favorite scenes that we've seen so far, I gotta say. Oh, it's it so good. So well I mean but yeah, like you say, it's really this scene really wrecked me too, like every scene with the reference right. <laughs> has done in recent episodes. But yeah, it's so powerfully written when he talks what he's talking about in this scene is that he's, you know he doesn't recognize Seth or Saul and he wants to believe that they're his friends, but he knows that he he doesn't know if they're devils, and he knows that that's what devils would do is appear as his friends. Right. And uh, it's just so sad. And we also yeah. get confirmation when he says that you know, uh, uh, Seth and and Saul were the nicest the nicest people in the whole camp to him, um, which is just like, you know, and and we know that Seth at some point had blown up at him, and and you know, it sometimes you know been a little short with him, and like of all the people in the camp. Now it's certainly Saul, I would say is one of the nicest people in the camp, just from what we've seen. And Seth is a genuinely, a generally a pretty nice guy. Um, but like they were his closest friends basically in the whole camp. And, you know, just getting confirmation of that out loud that like, this is basically it. And, and seeing their faces, like you could see that, that Seth and Saul are so, you know, touched by what he's saying and feels so bad for him. And Saul's trying so hard to be like, you know, it's us. We, you know, we, this is when we met, here's the situation, you know, you're, you're with friends. It's okay. And then Seth's like, can we walk you home? And, you know, and, ah, oh, it's, oh, it's awful. <laughs> it's so <laughs> sad. Um, and I'm, you know, it, they're definitely foreshadowing a, a sad, uh, end to that story. I don't know that there's a, a light at the end of this tunnel. No, I I can't imagine there is. <laughs> but it's the um, really the really unless Cochrane unless unless Cochrane like invents a revolutionary surgery that's way <laughs> ahead of its time. Yeah, um, I don't think this is going anywhere happy. Uh, I won't say anything more than this, but I will say that the Reverend is a real character. I don't know if I said this before, but he is a real character from like he was a real person in history and from Deadwood. Reverend Smith. Hmm. um, That that shouldn't surprise me anymore as much as it does, but it it, still does. Yeah. Just just all of these details. 
I don't know that any of this is what happened to him. Uh, I do know he was a, uh, I think, uh, Felt Pelt, our um, resident Deadwood expert, um, who <laughs> regularly comments on these uh, podcasts, um, had mentioned, I, I believe he was a, he served in the Civil War as a, as a reverend or something, which, by the way, um, uh, was pointed out maybe that's why he wasn't worried about smallpox, because he was probably exposed to it during the war and survived yeah. it. So he it makes perfect sense, yeah. Um, they just didn't address it in the context of the show, but the actual the actual Reverend Smith was so. Um, and uh, his I will spoil this in history he did eventually die. So um, <laughs> well, that's not. I didn't think he was still alive. I was gonna say he is not still alive in 2016. Uh, his gravesite is still around. Like you can go to it. I think. Hmm. Just crazy to me. Wow. <laughs> so cool. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we'll see where where that inevitably uh, dark story goes uh, for him. One other thing I just want to say about the Reverend's uh, the, that plotline before we conclude um, that that little story is uh, Al's concern about him is that he was um, going to drive away business, but when he kicks him out the second time, the guy who's you know dancing to the to the piano while the you know Reverend sort of taps his feet along to it is like throwing money out and clearly spending money like it doesn't seem to be affecting the atmosphere at all but when al forces him out of the place he says specifically that he wants him to leave he he so he starts off angry then steve seems sad for him and seems he says specifically that he wants him to stop making an ass of himself and i wonder if he was using that as an excuse you know to like in the beginning yeah he's like i don't want you to be here um in the first time he kicks him out i don't want you to be here because you're gonna drive away business but then he realizes he's like clearly very debilitated and has other things going on the second time he kicks him out he seems to kick him out for his own good like you're you're not doing your image and your reputation any good by being here and engaging in this you know debauchery that i traffic in you know like don't do this to yourself uh especially as we see in that one scene with doc cochran and the uh the prostitutes that they they do um they are making fun of him you know behind closed doors so you know there's also this level of just pride and basic self-respect that i think al is also concerned with uh with him and and i think that that was really the bigger the bigger reason he kicked him out rather than just you know losing business i don't know if it was that uh i don't know if i'd peg out as being that generous in that moment <laughs> um i i gener- i mean in i'm just following tone sense, of voice you know? i think you're I, you're reading him as much nicer in this scene than i did <laughs> just to be honest um but yeah no i i think to me it was it was more about al not having uh control over the atmosphere of his place um even if people were spending money, even if the Reverend wasn't being an impediment to that, um, that's not how Al. That's not how Al wants things to go. Sure. Yeah. That's yeah, not yeah. how Al. You know, Al has to be in control. He has to be able to understand how everything's working so that everything can work in a way that he knows works. Um, and even if the Reverend is increasing business <laughs> with his presence, uh, Al doesn't want any part of that because that's not something that he. Uh, co- that he has as complete an understanding of that he that's not something that he can uh, you know exert his influence over. I so, could, I I actually agree with you. I just think that there's another element to this. So I think that that is his initial 
that's that definitely fuels the initial anger and the initial you know urgency of him wanting to get him out but literally and it's it's something that's very hard to explain because it's al's voice ian mcshane's voice cracks midway through berating the reverend and it's very hard to explain without actually just watching the moment but he i'm going entirely on ian mcshane's performance on this not necessarily his words although he does specifically say you know you know, you're just making an ass of yourself here, um, and I think that that's I I don't know. To me, it held it held significance, but I'm also very sympathetic to Al as a character for some reason. But it really shouldn't. He's kind of just a bad guy. <laughs> but I always want to see the good in him because I just love the character so much, and I don't want to you know think of him as this kind of racist murderer, which he kind of is. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the last, I think we're almost at the um, we're almost at the end here. I, there was a little bit... Oh, so we have the the two last things. Uh, and one feeds into the other. Titus uh, Welliver plays uh, Silas yes, Adams. Yes, him. I was wondering. Yeah. Uh, this was my first ever exposure to Titus Welliver. He's been in a lot of stuff, but um, this was where I knew him from, and I was like, oh, it's Silas. Um, so he is a character. I'm assuming he's going to appear more than once because I remembered him, but I don't remember what context he appears in, so we will see. Um what do you make of their relationship in this episode? It's really interesting, I think. Uh, I don't know what to make of it. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I really don't. It's it seems to be not. It seems to be less than cordial at first. Just oh yes, because of the position that he's the, just because of the position that he's putting Al in uh, initially, and getting you know the letter that he gives him that he's getting kind of screwed over by the magistrates. Right. Um, but as the yeah as the episode kind of goes on there's they they both seem to shift their relationship kind of imperceptibly you know imperceptibly uh not imperceptibly but without directly addressing it uh the way that they treat each other just kind of changes and they yeah. become a lot more understanding of each other once al kind of brings him in on what's happening well um, it's, i think it actually happens sooner than that i think so after silas um, uh, responds to uh, Al's initial outburst toward him uh, in the in the gem when he first gets the letter. Al almost does a double take and goes like, "Yeah, you're right. Like, why, why did I? You know, you don't have anything to do with this. You're just the messenger. Why am I? You know." But he doesn't say this. He just it. He goes, "You know, free free drinks, free. You know, whatever. You can just stay here, um, and that's your." Um, and he does this suddenly. It's a sudden shift of like, you know, you're ruining my life, you know, free drinks, you know. And I think it's because he, he realizes that he reacted poorly. And he also, I think, appreciated Silas standing up for himself um, and in an effective way, not in like a, a Farnham sort of way. <laughs> uh, so these are very different things. Uh, and later he sort of starts putting him through his paces. It almost feels like an interview. And I, I wonder what the relationship will be moving forward, uh, especially since he brings him in on this other situation with um, uh, with the, the opium addicts. And so, you know, he almost seems like he's he's grooming him or he's, I, I don't know, I, I can't tell if it's a henchman type deal, like you're going to, you know, he's going to end up working for Al or if he's only there temporarily and is going to leave or what this other guy's deal is, the guy who doesn't really talk very much. Um, it's not really clear yet, uh, but I do. There's definitely a, a shift in in how their relationship um, shakes out. I agree, uh, and it's not. Well, clear it's almost it's like going. Al. It's almost like Al on this very stressful day, 
Like he needs someone to bear witness to yeah. all the shit he's going through. Like it's like, like he brings him in and he's like, "Look, I just I, I need you to understand <laughs> yeah. what's going on with me what right would now." You do? Yeah, yeah, because you would not believe the kind of day I'm having before you walked in. You know? <laughs> um, and, and he that's exactly what he does, and he presents it. You know, he there is a very clear understanding between the two of them that that emerges in the scene in the bath after the scene in the bathhouse. Um, they they get who each other uh, Silas gets who Al is. Yep. When he's and he's about, also you know, not really he doesn't shy away from the whole murder. Exactly, thing. he's he not bothered care. by it at yep. all. He doesn't seem to be anyway. Um, seem to care at all. Yeah. And when Al says, "Oh, there was no short straw," he's like, "Oh, well, of course." Yep. <laughs> he's almost like, "Oh, okay, that makes perfect sense to me." Um, but he doesn't like he doesn't shift or flinch when Al suddenly drowns Jimmy. Like he doesn't he just stands there. Like, yeah. yeah, and yeah. I think I think maybe why Al brought him along is because he saw that in that initial interaction when Silas, yep. like you said, stands up for himself. I think yep. he saw that, you know, uh, like you've killed someone before. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how uh, if that's just something you kind of get about another person. Um, that's just a, a connection you can have with another, uh, another person. But yeah, no, he immediately sees like, all right, this this guy's like me, right? Uh, we're we're on the same page with regard to this stuff, and he's you know turns out to be right. Um, I mean, I I like Titus Welliver. I hope that he shows up again or that he's in more episodes. We also get a direct statement from Al that Sai is his rival, uh, which is funny. You know, <laughs> it's it's we have talked about these things in the past. You know that he can't kill everyone because he wouldn't have anyone to manipulate, etc. anymore. And then he says that in this episode, basically. And then we've talked about Sai as sort of his rival, and then he says it directly in this episode. There's a lot of open things to new characters who haven't been, you know, in the show before. So there's, like, it's a free free reign on a little bit of exposition so we can get some, you know, direct statements of relationships between characters that we didn't get before. So that's, I thought that was kind of um, cute. Uh but yeah, so so it's interesting to get to get Titus Welliver's outside perspective in this, and um, yeah, what do you what did you think of this uh, this last? Well, it's not the last scene, but like basically the last major scene of the the episode um, in the tubs. Uh, it's a really tense moment uh, with these two well, characters. Yeah, I, I think it's... this is his commentary on uh, or the the show's commentary on race. I think comes in this episode. This uh, this scene. It's well. It's. I mean, I'm curious to see why you think that. Um, <laughs> it's. <laughs> it's strange that Al puts so much emphasis on the straw thing, um, because obviously he knows exactly what he's. First of all, he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows who he's going to have killed, or who not have killed. Who he's just going to kill right there, um, and he knows that he. He it needs to be Jimmy because of. Uh, what what Psy would do if it was Leon. Right. So he goes through this whole kind of rigmarole with the straw, and with the broom and everything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He he has this whole kind of you know song and dance about you know making sure that it, basically the only thing that this accomplishes is that Leon leaves there thinking that it was random, and he probably goes back to Psy and says, "Yeah, he made us draw straws, and I just barely got out of there." Right. So to maybe to maybe make Sai think that he wasn't he didn't listen to him. Well, exactly. Yeah, it, it's it's weird that because if you wanted to just appease Sai in this situation, you wouldn't do any of that. You would just say, "All right, fine. You don't have anything to do with this. I don't want to go to war with you." Like he says, kind of like he says after this, 
so I'll just ha have my guy killed, which is what he intends to do anyway. But instead, he makes this situation where Sai now thinks that, like, okay, like, ultimately, I can't argue with him because he killed Jimmy and not Leon, but it seems, it sounds to me like he could have very easily killed Leon. Like, he didn't care what right. I had to say. So it's, again, another, like, uh, psychological power play right. from Al, even though Sai is not even there. He's just, he's creating this, uh, this scenario in such a way that, um, uh, Sai won't be able to argue with him about what happened, but Sai will also, you know, know that Al didn't really care about his input on the situation at all. Um, it's, and again, it's in an, it's accomplished so simply with the straw thing. It is, it is. And I, you know, the other thing that's, that's funny about this scene is these two characters are sitting there in the tub, uh, you know, doing opium and don't think maybe this is all just keeping us busy while they figure out what to do with us. By the way, I just remembered why you, why the race comes into the scene. I had completely forgotten about everything Leon says in the tub. Yeah, everything Leon says, exactly, and we're going to talk um, about that. But, I know yeah, what you're talking about. Significant. Um, I think... Uh, so anyway, so but Dan had to basically... If you can just imagine what Dan's like couple of last couple of hours were, which were, oh, uh, I have to sit around and entertain these idiots until Al decides whether or not he's going to kill both or one of them. Um, you know, and he had to just sit there while they're like, you know, naked in tubs, you know, high out of their minds. I just, it's funny to think about what characters do in the, you know, off screen, uh, in the, in the interim periods. Um, so I, yeah, that's, I, I want a whole episode about like what, it, like a day in Dan's life. Cause this is a recurring thing with yeah. him, <laughs> that he has to do these ridiculous odd jobs and sometimes these horrible, you know, horrible odd jobs for Al and that we, yeah, we always kind of, enter. yeah, he had to change, he had to change Jimmy. Exactly. Yeah, that's like it's one of those things that we don't see, but that he just agrees to do, and that he la and that he later does off screen. Um, I, w I would love, to and that he doesn't seem to have any, you know, argument about. Not like Farnham, who we see earlier, oh, like God. he's when he's scrubbing the blood stain, uh, talking to himself about, oh, <laughs> Al, of course you would, you know, saddle me with this. Um, Dan doesn't seem to have any. He doesn't seem to begrudge Al telling him to do these things for whatever reason so speaking of which we're overdue on monologues um although dan yeah. doesn't seem like the monologuing type um even if he did have that opportunity um yeah no i i agree it would be cool to get a, a dan pov uh episode um the the one thing i just want to say about the straws is i i wonder if the other reality is he may have still been considering how he was gonna he, he may have been buying himself time he may have gone into the and it, it, you can definitely make this case either way, but he may have gone into that bathhouse place. Um, not entirely sure if he was going to go through with the logical option or if he was going to... And I think he was continuing to wonder what his actual approach would be as Leon continued to be progressively more annoying uh, throughout this entire scene. But wow, is Leon the worst. <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy may be groveling idiot and may have been complicit in this whole situation, but he's infinitely the superior character um, in terms of not, you know, he grovels and he's, you know, pathetic, but he's not obnoxious. Whereas Leon's like, and I think this is what I was going to get at, you know, um, we're white, so, you know, 
obviously we're going to be okay. And of course I should have known that, you know, being white is the greatest thing in the world and, you know, they're Chinese anyway, so what does it matter? And yada, yada, yada. And I'm not going to go talk to Mr. Wu, who, by the way, Al has just demonstrated multiple times to us, the audience, uh, that he has respect for. And, you know, he gets to call them all sorts of things. But Wu specifically, you know, if you're insulting Wu and he's the corresponding, you know, character in a different part of the town... Um, to or position in a different part of the town to what he is, then you know, are you insulting him? And so I think he's really like heavily well, considering. He, he directly Leon. insults him because he keeps calling him Al. Oh, and so he keeps calling him that... Al, which he gets furious with. At the end, he ends up just punching him out. Yeah, but I think that's indicative of the fact that he was really tempted to just kill Leon. He knew he had to mm-hmm. kill Jimmy, but he was like, "Man, if I could just kill you, oh my god." <laughs> um. Yeah, and I I just, broadly speaking, I really find this whole political game interesting where he's like, well, maybe I could get away with one, but it has to be the right one. I can't have two white people for two Chinese people. And, like, it's a very crass, on paper, a very crass thing, but the reality of navigating it in this scenario they've created in the the show is is definitely interesting. But um, I think that they've made this a very clear, to me, it's a clear statement that the show is making, especially with Leon's behavior in this scene where even though he's not the one who ends up paying the price, you know, by dying um, in this, in this, uh, in this moment, he's clearly the one who's rebuked in this scene. I don't know by what means, maybe by Al's hitting him. Maybe it's by his grating and obnoxious, you know, um, prattling on as he's, uh, uh, you know, discussing what's going to happen next. Um, but I definitely get the impression just watching this scene that we're supposed to think Leon sounds like an ass. You know what I mean? I don't oh, know. Oh, I that's... mean, no, no, no question about that. Right. And to me, he's representing this. I don't say white privilege because it's like the extreme version of white privilege to the like an <laughs> it's li- absurd yeah, literal, level. Yeah. But maybe it is though. I mean, what's you know, if not to get too political with it, but like the idea of. Uh, you know, you're white, so you're not held accountable under the law, right? It's not a thing that's in any way not a thing anymore, right? It's, it's of course, it's a thing still, even to this day. It's less overt, and if you said that in court, you would be. Well, well, they have know. actual conversations in this episode about whose lives matter more than other, you know, yeah. based on their race. That's that's what they're talking about. That's the text of the episode. Yeah, um, that's absolutely. So true. it certainly has some political relevance to today. It does. It does. And so you know, the idea like, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm white, or I'm, you know, a, a man, or whatever, and like, so I shouldn't be held accountable for this particular crime. That's something we certainly see today. So, it's, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely um, poignant say that um i think that's that's it for this episode yeah i think pretty much what is next week that is jules boot is made for walking all right oh nice cool i love that title (laughs) and yay that probably means we'll get more jewel we got it like a half second of her in this episode but i think we'll get more of it well i mean we got similar to how we finally got into mr Wu this week Maybe we'll finally get into Jewel next week. It's isn't it like a weird thing that in this last couple of episodes we're getting introduced to all these new characters at the end. Yeah, of this the season. late in the season, it's it's, it's uh, a little strange, but cool. It, I guess it's totally bizarre. like oh, let's just give a side character a whole episode. What? 
Um, yeah, this would never happen on other shows. On other shows, this would be like when we're ramping up to the big finale. Right, exactly. But, yeah. But the reality, of course, of Deadwood is not, I, you know, not to, to, to take the window of anyone's sails, but there's not really a climax as there is in, you know, Game of Thrones or something. Um, so there's not really something to ramp up to. <laughs> um, and as we've seen, we've seen these 10 episodes, there's not a consistent story arc for the whole season. Right, we we did these little mini arcs, but there's nothing connecting the whole season, so it's not really building to anything in particular. Maybe government, maybe, but that's already been made. Um, maybe we'll see some ramifications of them forming this ad hoc government, or if they don't pay their bribes on time or something. But that's really all we could see. There's not really like a big showdown set to happen, as far as as far as we can see so far. Um, so yeah, next week. Learn about Joel. <laughs> All right.